Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. The Philippines, among the many nations whose history is one of being colonized and subjugated by the world's empires, today suffers the consequences of that legacy. Underdevelopment, high unemployment, and deepening poverty. This has led to a phenomenon that dominates the lives of millions of Filipinos. The fact that over 10% of the population, mostly women, must leave the country to seek work in order to send money back to their families. 6,000 people leave the Philippines as migrant workers every single day. Imagine children, often too young to understand, watching their mother leave and knowing they will not see them again for a decade or more. This is now a shared experience for countless families on the island nation. Most go to work low-wage jobs in the United States, United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, and Japan. They send back over $20 billion a year into the Philippine economy. Despite its dramatically smaller population, the Philippines ranks alongside India and China as the top countries receiving such remittances. But when these people leave their homes, they enter into a dark, cruel industry. Human trafficking is mostly absent in U.S. consciousness. Most don't think of trafficking when it comes to jobs like nannies, maids at big hotel chains, and other domestic work, but millions of migrant workers are trafficked into these jobs every year. It's defined as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons by improper means for an improper purpose, including forced labor or sexual exploitation. This global black market ensnares 21 million people around the world, making $150 billion a year in illegal profits for traffickers. According to the recent report, The Human Trafficking of Domestic Workers in the United States, there are currently 2 million migrant domestic workers that live in the U.S., around 300,000 of whom are Filipina. Entering legally with work visas, the overwhelming majority are placed by agencies into shockingly inhumane conditions. Over 80% have had their pay withheld or are paid below minimum wage, live in abusive conditions, and have been tricked with false or deceptive contracts. Over 70% work excessive overtime and have had their movements restricted or monitored by employers. A New York City-based organization called Damayan, which means to help each other, is one group fighting this web of exploitation. It is led by Filipino women domestic workers and with 8,000 members, organizes and provides legal assistance to other migrant workers and trafficking victims. I visited their bustling headquarters to understand more about the situation. Linda, a co-founder at Damayan who came to the U.S. as a migrant worker, explains the sacrifice experienced by these women. So in 1994, you know, I made the fateful decision to come here, you know. When I first came here, I left, you know, my children, they were in elementary, you know, uh, a boy and a girl, and uh, it wasn't easy. You know, it's always hard, you know, for a mother to leave her children. But I felt that I did not have a choice, you know. Uh, I had no, you know, uh, enough <clears throat> source of income to send my two children to college. And I, I really need to go abroad, you know. My pain, my difficulties in being away from my children, those were all collateral damage. I was very young then. I'm now 65, you know. Life is different for me now. I also have a granddaughter and, <clears throat> you know, having the chance to raise my granddaughter, now I realize how, how precious, you know, uh, the moments that I've lost, 
and uh, that really caused my uh, the relation my relationship to my children. You know, uh, <clears throat> women Filipino women who come here they don't talk about the family and the social cost of migration, but it is real. One of Linda's children, her daughter Ria, also came to the U.S. as an adult. She recalls what it was like to lose her mother so young. Yeah, it was um, really difficult. Um, I consider myself a product of um, forced migration. So uh, when I was eight, you know, I found myself crying my eyes out at the Manila International Airport because my father, brother, and I were saying goodbye to my mother. She was about to board her flight um, to work as a domestic worker in the U.S. I had no idea what was going on, but I knew that I was about to lose my mother and um, our family was about to get separated. Um, yeah, so after that, yeah, things changed. Thing, things changed, you know, I had, um, well, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD you know, um, when, when I, I got older. And I know it was because of um, the family separation or um, the impacts of family separation on my family. So that's why I'm very invested in this work. Human trafficking survivor Sally also came to the U.S. at great personal cost. I have three children and my husband uh, suffering stroke. So I need to work to provide their uh, living. My youngest child is a special child, so I, it's hard for me to leave, but I, I, need, I need to go abroad to, to support them. Then the worst that I experienced when I, I'm not with them is when my husband died because I can't, I, I, I didn't go home. I have no money. So. It's hard to see that I cannot uh, see my, the last breath of my husband. And my, my, my kids, is, they are living without parents. So it's hard for me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really sad, you know, for these women, uh, me included, you know, that you pay, you know, <clears throat> a very high price, you know, to support your family, and you grow old and you realize uh, you're still sacrificing. Many of our members are broken, uh, not just brokenhearted, well, they're also penniless. <laughs> they sent all the money home, right? Yeah, no money to take care of themselves when they go home, and they're heartbroken. So there was a time when it was more men who are leaving the country, working in Saudi, in you know uh, the United States and other countries, you know, for manufacturing construction jobs, uh, that era was disappearing by 1980s and be beginning 1990s. So uh, from the 1990s, the migration has become feminized. It's it now the challenge is on the women, and the women took it. Of those 6,000 Filipinos who live every day. You, I could say that, you know, uh, maybe 80% are women and 70% uh, of those women become domestic workers. And in the Philippines, one out of four have a family member that is abroad, you know, and now it's mostly women. I can't imagine what that does to a country when that many women are <clears throat> leaving 
these yeah. families were nice. You create, you know, a generation of dysfunctional families and children with a lot of uh, emotional and psychological problems. These women endure such personal hardships only to become victims of human trafficking and subjected to criminal working conditions. So in 2007, um, we met our first trafficking survivor. She was the domestic worker for um, the Philippine ambassador to the UN. She worked as a nurse you know, in the Philippines, and she was promised that she would be able to work as a nurse when she comes here. Um, so she was asked to sign you know, a, a contract, basically, that she would pay $5,000, you know, um, and she would be able to come here and work. And then when she came here, she didn't know that she would work, you know, as a, that she would come here as a, um, a domestic worker for the diplomat. So she ended up um, uh, she ended up cleaning, you know, three floors, uh, a house with three floors. She was serving the diplomat, his family, including the grandchildren. Um, her passport was taken. She was not allowed to leave the house. The house was locked from the inside. She had no phone. She had no contact with her family. You know, to the point that she was suicidal. You know, um, we met her because uh, I think it, you know, the landline. You know, um, you know, they wouldn't even give her access to the landline, right? And so one time, you know, it rang. She picked it up. There was a Filipino on the other line, and she said, you know, help me, help me, right? So she ended up, you know, and the other woman ended up uh, knowing the Mayan. So that's how she was um, connected to us. How common is that for diplomats to completely abuse uh, the system like that? Oh yeah, very, very common. The Mayan, like, uh, like what I said, we've been doing this work since 2007 and until recently. Most of the cases that we're handling are domestic workers of diplomats. We've handled, you know, cases, you know, from diplomats, you know, from Japan, from Peru, from uh, Germany. You know, I mean, the UN is just right here. It's like buying a slave, you know, for them. You would think these people, you know, with their, you know, like degrees and their titles would treat another human being, you know, with, with dignity and respect, right? You know, they're supposed to be you know, human rights defenders, but they're, they're the very ones, you know, who are abusing these workers, who are taking care of their homes and their children and them. You know, it's, it's, it's um, mind-boggling. It is. The level of dehumanization is yes. totally mind-boggling. And let's, let's talk about the passports being removed and the lack of communication, because people watching this may think, well, why can't you just call your family? Why can't you just warn people and say, don't, don't do this and, and help me? And a lot of these people have all of these things completely cut off from them. You know, so the first thing that they do when they get a domestic worker, you know, in their homes is to take away their passports, right? One of the main elements of uh, labor trafficking is control. You know, it's creating that climate of fear. So it's either the control is through physical, so meaning, you know, their passport is taken or, you know, other important documents are taken. You know, the house is locked, you know, they can't, I've never heard of houses, you know, that gets locked from the inside, but apparently that's where, you know, diplomats, you know, set up their houses that way. Insane. I know, right? Who does that? You know, it's like, it's like premeditated, you know, crime, right? Right. Yeah. So we've had a worker um, who worked for a, a diplomat in Westchester um, where there's an alarm system. So every time she stepped out, you know, to bring out the trash or get the newspaper, the alarm would beep. Right? So it would keep beeping until she enters you know, the house again. The consulates or the embassies you know, in the Philippines or in other countries, they're actually aware that there's trafficking happening in the U.S. because they would tell the workers, you know, if anything happens to you, call this number. 
right? And then we've heard, we've consistently heard of this, um, this pamphlet that was given to our members, you know, but we've never seen a copy. And then yesterday, I just received a copy from our members. So it's this one, right? So this is the pamphlet that they would receive, you know, from the consulate, you know, um, from their home countries. And then usually as soon as they come here, the passport and this pamphlet will be taken away from them. Isn't that ironic, right? You know, it's like, okay, call this number if you're getting traffic. And as soon as you come here, you know, like, okay, I guess I can't call them because they're taking this. I'm actually getting traffic right now. That's just the irony of the situation. Maria, let's talk about the, the conditions, the abusive conditions that some of these people are living in mm -hmm. um, and, and the slave-like conditions, essentially. I mean... Um, let's start with just just the pay. You said that there's instances where you can sign up in a contract and say, I, you know, you're, you're contracted to have this, this many hours for this much pay. Of course, that is violated. What about when you're not paid at all, you know, and you're essentially trapped in these situations? Talk about that. We've had, you know, one of our worker organizers, um, Lydia. She was brought here by um, uh, a church. You know, uh, she was supposed to come here as a missionary but she ended up working as a domestic worker for you know, some of the uh, top church leaders. And she worked for free for three years, you know, like zero pay. So I, when I was invited to come here, I, I was really excited and happy to have this opportunity. So in that uh, opportunity coming here as a missionary, I got a five, a five years visa, a religious visa. In that uh, contract, I was told that in two years, being a full-time in the church, uh, doing a fundraising and supporting the church, they will adjust my status into green card. But that didn't happen to me. So I ended up become, uh, became a domestic worker. For three years, no salary. I was taking care of the three young kids for three years, seven days a week, 24 24 hours a day, no days off, no salary. I always hungry. I have no, I, I have no, I can't talk to my friends. No, I, have, I can't uh, communicate with my family. I was told like, because my green card didn't come. So I was told that they're gonna send me back to Philippines. But then I realized that I was used by this family. The reason I cannot uh, like uh, escape in this situation, I cannot live in this situation. I don't know anyone. Mm -hmm. I'm scared. I was only I brought I, I came as a missionary, and only I I know people that around that group. Then I was told that making a friend in the outside of that group is not safe for me. Yeah, I can imagine like going back for nothing, and then you're gonna start from zero. Like, right. yeah, what will happen to my future and my family? Like, So when they found out that you were gone, yeah. they tried to contact you and threaten you yes. and deport you? Yes. Like, I have to hide. And they have, I don't have, I don't have anyone. Even, yeah, like, uh, uh, went to my family in Philippines. They're looking for me. Is Lydia? What? Yes. Is Lydia here? Is it was kind of scary and truly like, they treated me like a criminal. The placement agencies running this scam register workers in the U.S. primarily through their H-2B visas for low-skilled seasonal workers and A3G5 visas for domestic workers of diplomats. Foreign diplomats are actually the top clients for traffickers. 
um, for A3G5 or domestic workers of diplomats. That means that um, they were recruited, you know, from the Philippines. You know, they were promised on paper that they would earn, you know, this much, you know, work for 40 hours a week, you know, get paid $8 an hour, have benefits, you know, trans uh, transportation, lodging, you know, days off, right? Um, but when they come here, they realize that it's all a fraud, right? You know, that everything that they were shown, you know, was just for show so that their visa would be approved and they would be able to come here. Same thing with the domestic workers who go through the H-2B program. So the H-2B program, that's actually uh, low-skilled seasonal workers. So the, the U.S. government's quota for that is 60000 a year, or around 60000 a year. So the strategy of the placement agencies is to fill the quota. You know, they would place, um, I mean, they would go to third world countries, you know, like Mexico, India, and the Philippines, recruit workers, you know, who are not really middle class, you know, like more like working poor or peasant background, you know, with the promise of being able to come to the U.S., right? And then when, you know, the, and they would be forced to pay, you know, anywhere between 3000 to $9,000. And of course, you know, these are not rich people and the Philippines is a third world country. So they would, lo you know, like loan the house, you know, mortgage the house, borrow money from loan sharks, or it becomes a community affair. You know, everyone in the family pitches in, right? Um, and then when they uh, uh, get the money, you know, the that required as a processing fee, they're able to come here only to find out that there are no jobs for them. Or, you know, they, they were promised 40 hours a week, but they're only working anywhere between 5 to 10 hours. You know, and then, of course, by that time, panic would set in. You know, because they were already expecting that they would be able to pay their debts back home. You know, the kids will be able to go to school. You know, it's money for the medical bills, right? And then when they come here, none of that happens. Um, so they get into this like uh, uh, like spiral of you know depression and also um, just abuse in the hands of the placement agencies. They usually find themselves living in you know cramped living situations. You know we're talking about you know like a two bedroom apartment with like three or four people in each room. You know with no furnishing. They were like earning like fifty dollars a week, right? And then they still had to pay you know for their um, for their apartment. Meanwhile, they're not earning. They were not earning. So they would, um, when, when they're cleaning the resorts, you know, or the hotels, they would, you know, gather food, you know, or um, that the guests have left, and they would, you know, food in the trash, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they would recook it and then eat it. We've had an instance, you know, of a worker, you know, who was brought to a container van, and then they opened the, the van. It was, like, filled with, like, cockroaches. I said, no, we're, we're not going in there. You know, like the, the workers refused to go in there. So they, you know, bombed it with poison, right? And then they had to clean up, you know, the cockroaches. You know, it's like, imagine like moving halfway around the world and then being, you know, confronted by situation like that. You don't know the country, you don't know the culture, you don't know anyone. And then you're, you know, you're, you're totally alone and um, desperate. And a lot of the workers, like I said, are either you know working poor or peasants or um, middle-class professionals but even the middle-class professionals they would go they would apply you know for an h2b visa because there are no jobs back home you know um, it's like living living in a third world country like the Philippines you know it's like living in a burning building right you know it's you're you're living in a bu uh, burning building and of course you're forced to jump out of the windows and 
you know, and in the Philippines, you know, in the Philippines case, you're not just jumping out of the windows. Someone is actually profiting from you, you know, from jumping out of the windows. And these are the placement agencies that are approved by the Philippine government. And then on the U.S. side, of course, there's collaboration, right, you know, between displacement agencies. Because these agencies are tied to big hotels, you know, and big resorts, you know, in Florida or in other um, cities. And instead of hiring, you know, U.S.-born or American workers where they have to pay minimum wage, you know, full benefits, you know, and other things, they will skip all of that and just hire a, a worker from a third world country like the Philippines and pay $750 an hour, you know, no benefits at all, right? So, of course, they would go with, with the worker, you know, with the migrant worker. Another way these placement agencies profit from those trapped in this fraud is by charging them around seven times the amount for visa renewals, a process required every six to nine months. Even more treacherous is when the agencies refuse to renew their workers' visas at all, trapping them in a situation where they must work illegally, under threat from their employer. It's a very desperate situation for them because now they found themselves you know, uh, becoming undocumented. And it's not the typical narrative that we know when we talk about un undocumented people, you know, uh, workers, migrant workers coming here and then their visas not being renewed. It's either, you know, either because the placement agencies are abusive or diplomats who are abusive, abusive and they have to run away. It's not the typical narrative that we know. So they mess up our, my, my, my papers, but they force me to, to work without proper documents. So th the contract was being violated that you signed. Um, your visa wasn't renewed. How, talk about you know, when they forced you to, to keep working without proper documentation. I mean, how did you make that work? Yeah, I, I feel so bad because I'm very, I'm very scared to get out in my house or going to work when the manager uh, we will talk to the manager. They, they said, "If you will not stop, we will, you, we, you will be deported, and I will call the police. Then they will uh, put you in the jail." They said like that. When we talk about uh, our situation with my coworkers, so we decided to escape. Uh, many have overstayed. It is true, you know, Mr. Trump. You know, many have overstayed. Why? because you know uh, there's no other option for these women to support their children except to continue working you know in their you know uh, receiving country like the u.s and if i may just remind you know the government of the united states our country was ruined you know primarily by the united states and yeah. if you know mr trump and Ms. De mr duterte are you know trying to think what will make you know immigrants go home just create jobs, you know, in the sending country. Why is that not happening? Because, you know, the interests of the elite in the Philippines and the interests of the corporations here are very tightly intertwined. <laughs> That's really the story. <laughs> we are just, you know, your creations, you know. And if we're going to solve this, we have to solve it on a macro level. For Damayan, these deeper issues are at the core of their fight. They're in a two-front battle on one side fighting for the rights of their workers, on the other fighting to change the system that created this tragic crisis. There's this quote that I really like, you know, the workers are the true makers of history, 
or ang ang mga manggagawa ang tunay na tagapaglikha ng kasaysayan. And we're creating this entire process not just to help them, you know, adjust their status or win their were wage theft, their stolen wages, but it's also so that they can raise their consciousness, you know, that this, you know, it was sad that this happened to me. It was heartbreaking, you know, that they suffered, but also that, you know, a lot of people are suffering, you know, um, everyone, you know, trafficking survivors as a collective are suffering. The children of domestic workers are suffering, right? You know, and the suffering will not end, you know, if we just stop with adjusting our status and winning our cases. But we can end that vicious cycle, you know, if we put the leadership of trafficking survivors, you know, at the center. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.